welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Well, back in uh, the early 2000s, there was a series of movies that came out. They were the Ocean series. It started with Ocean's Eleven. Anybody ever seen that? Show of hands, the Ocean series. Uh, it's great movies. They're really good movies if you, if you like uh, old movies about heists and robbers. Let me give you a breakdown of the, of the first one, of Ocean's Eleven. And in the first movie, the main character, main character, Daniel Ocean, gets out of prison. And upon getting out of prison, he immediately begins to try to build his life back. And, and he begins to look for the woman he loves, a woman named named Tess, played by Julia Roberts. And he soon finds that Ch- uh, Tess is actually dating and in love with a guy named Terry Benedict, a casino owner. So in this movie, Danny Ocean decides he is going to rob Terry Benedict as a way of punishing him for being in love with his woman. I know what you're thinking. Is this church? Yes, this is. I'm going somewhere with this. At the end of the movie, he has created this elaborate heist where he's stolen $150 million from Terry Benedict this casino owner and the last scene of the movie is Danny Ocean walking into his office into Terry Benedict's office and he says I want to make a deal I'm going to give you an opportunity to get your 150 million dollars back and Terry Benedict looks at him and he says what do you want and Danny Ocean looks at him and says I want Tess I don't care about the money I don't care about beating you in some scheme. I just want the love of my life back. And Terry Benedict looks at him and he says, you would give up all of that money just for me to basically let Tess go to quit pursuing her. And Danny Ocean says, yes. Terry Benedict says, deal. I don't want the woman. I want the money. Now, the crux of this whole point is that at that moment, the scene switches. And what you see is Ocean's Eleven, the team that has just pulled off this heist, has also planted a camera in Terry Benedict's office. And they're capturing all of this on video. And Tess is watching. And what she sees in this video, she sees two men who are in competition. And there's one man who has the money. And he's willing to give it up for the girl. And there's another man who has the girl and he's willing to give it up for the money. And in that moment, she realizes which one of these men actually loves her. I think that moment captures something about human essence and and true love. Is that true love, if we truly love in a way that God calls us to, that love will turn into sacrificial generosity. I also think that that scene tells us that we can identify fake love. It can be revealed by greed. Now, the reason I bring that up is we've been in a series called the Dreaded Money Series. We're talking about the topic nobody wants to talk about. And by the way, thanks for coming back to the Money Series. I know that some of you did not want to be here this morning. Like, this series is not about, like, hey, you need to tithe more or you need to give more money to the church. I'm staying away from all of that. This series is simply about this. We want to learn to be generous with our money and our, 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 uh, our resources in the same way that God has been generous to us. We want to love 
love of God recreated in us. Last week we talked about a gentleman in the Bible called Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a legalized thief. He was a tax collector and he got rich by overcharging people on taxes and keeping the extra for himself. And here's what we find is we find that when you come into the context of God's love, it changes your view of money. Zacchaeus was someone who got rich by exploiting others. But when he comes into contact with Jesus Christ, he begins to give all of his money away. We see that when you come in contact with Jesus Christ, it changes your identity. Zacchaeus' identity had been found in wealth and gain, but now his identity was in Christ. And today I want to look at another story about how the love of God in our lives should and does affect how we view our money and how we view our resources. Now the story that I want to tell you today is a very long one. It actually takes up one and a half whole books of the, of the Bible. Not chapters, books. So I thought instead of reading about 893 verses, I'd give you a quick background and then we get to the main part of the story I want to talk about today. So on your take-home truths, there's a little bit of history here, a little bit of biblical history, and four people you need to know to understand the purpose of what's going on here today. The first person on that take-home truth is Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Israel had been ruled by a theocracy. That means that they simply were ruled by God. God was their king. But they looked at all the other nations and they cried out to God and they said, God, we want a king. God argued with them, said, you don't want a king. They will, they will rule over you. They will be horrible governors of everything the land has. I am your king. And they said, no, God, we want a king. So God granted their wish. God gave them a king, Saul. Now Saul started off pretty good in a way, very holy, but as time goes on, he does what most people in power do. He becomes corrupted, corrupted by power and he starts to change a little bit as he gets very proud of himself. He starts to erect monuments to himself to show how great he is. He, he begins to disobey God. God will tell him, I'm going to give you this city. Go take over this city, but I want you to kill all the livestock and leave all of the plunder. Don't go looking for gold and silver and Saul begins to look for gold and silver and said well I'm doing it for God I'm going to give the money to God he begins to go in other directions before a battle he consults a medium which is a psychic but always controlled by the demonic realm and for this reason Saul is rejected as king by God you can find that story in first Samuel chapters 15 and 16 so after this, God decides to pick a new king. Now this is a problem for the second person on our list, Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. Uh, Jonathan is in line to take the, uh, take the crown when Saul dies. But when Saul is rejected as king, Jonathan is also rejected as part of the lineage of Saul. So when uh, Jonathan's turn to become king comes, he is not able to get it. Now, both of these characters die before today's story, but they're important for today's story. Because Jonathan was best friends with a man called David. That's your third character we're going to talk about. David is going to be the crux of today's story. When God rejects Saul as king, he sends Samuel. He says, I want you to go to Jesse. He has a bunch of sons. I want you to look at Jesse's sons. And one of those men is the one who I will choose to be king. And Jesse, or uh, Samuel goes to Jesse and he begins to say, I want to see your sons. And he goes through all of the sons that Jesse offers him. And he says, I see nobody who should be king. And Jesse says, I have one more son a young shepherd boy. He, he's out tending the flocks. I didn't, want to th I didn't think you wanted to see him. He's kind of ugly, small, not good for much. 
And Samuel says, bring him to me. And God immediately says, this is the one that I have chosen to be the next king. And by the time we get to the story of today, David has risen to be the king of Israel. And then we have one more person that we need to talk about. And your fourth person is Mephibosheth. This is Jonathan's son. Mephibosheth would be Saul's grandson. He would be Jonathan's son, which means he would have been in the line for the throne of Saul's dynasty if Saul had kept going. Which what this means in the ancient world is it means that Mephibosheth and David should have been mortal enemies. It was common at this time in the world, if a king took over, he is going to kill everybody who poses any kind of threat to his throne. If there was another dynasty that people People might have liked. He will kill all the people of that family, all the males of that family, so nobody can take a threat to his, uh, to offer a threat to his throne. Many of these kings would kill their own family members so that nobody else would come and take their power from them. So when you look at, at David and Mephibosheth, really the accepted course of action would have been for David to find this person who would have been king and kill him so he could never take away David's throne. It's a little bit like today. It's a little bit like treason. Throughout history, treason has been punishable by death. And the reason treason is punishable by death is because you as an individual pose a threat to the government, so the government takes you out. At this time, the king was the government, so if you pose a threat to the king, the king would take you out. Your existence was basically treason. So now we have David and Mephibosheth existing in the same world. And I want you to look at how David handles this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 9. Read with me verses 1 through 5. And David said, Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show uh, the kindness of God unto? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan has yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Mekar, and the son, the son of Emil, and Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Mekar, and the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Keep your Bibles open, we're going to come there. Now, this chapter happens immediately after David has been shoring up his kingdom. He has went to war with other kingdoms around him. He has beat them by the grace of God and with the power of God as God goes before his armies. He has beat them. He has established a military presence in those countries. Those countries are now paying taxes to David. David is getting rich from this. And the very next thing we see after David's conquest of uh, reigning in the power of Israel is he begins to ask a question. You know the man who was king after me, or before me? Does he have any family members left? And our immediate thought should be, David is getting ready to kill these people who would possibly pose a threat to his lineage. But immediately, immediately David says, I want to show kindness to them. I want to love them for Jonathan's sake. And so what they find is they find a servant named Ziva who had been a servant of the house of Saul. Now to understand the word servant, when we hear servant, we think very Americanized. We think like day laborer, wage worker, something like this. This person who works for the family. When you see the word servant in the Bible, you need to think more like butler. 
You ever seen those movies where the rich people, they have the butler and the butler, the butler doesn't just work for the family. The butler is like part of the family. Their job is to serve everybody, but they're part of the family. That's what Ziba would have been to Saul and Jonathan. He would have been the butler of the family. He would have been very close to them. And Ziba says, yes, absolutely. There is one person left of the family, a grandson of Saul, a son, a son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth and he is in hiding. Now look at what David does. Verse six. He says, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold thy servant. Now look at this interaction, this face-to-face meeting between two men who should be mortal enemies. Mephibosheth walks in and he sees David sitting on the throne of his grandfather, the throne that he should be sitting on at this point. And he falls on his face and he begins to offer reverence and respect. David says, hey, Mephibosheth, he said, I'm your servant. What he's basically saying is, don't kill me. I pose you no threat. And we learn a little bit about Mephibosheth through this. Uh, Look at his profile for just a second. At this time, Mephibosheth was somewhere between 13 and 18. He has a son, so probably towards the end of that. His father had been killed when he was five in wars. He expected to be killed as well. His grandfather had been rejected as king. Because of all this, he had been in hiding since he was five years old. And on top of that, as they were fleeing, trying to get this child hidden to save his life, his nanny or his nurse dropped him. And something about that drop messed up Mephibosheth's feet. He wasn't able to walk. And so for his whole life, he had lived one big tragedy. And now he's brought before the king and his expectation is this man is going to throw me in prison or this man is going to kill me because all of his life, he has been told his whole existence is about staying alive when everybody wants to kill you. But in reality, we see a different story. There were no qualifiers, no deals, nothing Mephibosheth did to earn this. David looks at Mephibosheth and says, because of who your father was, because your father was my friend, because I loved him, I'm going to pour out my generosity on you. Uh, Read with me the rest of the story, verses 7 through 13. And David said unto him, fear not. For I will surely show the kindness of Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I? That's Mephibosheth's saying. It's like, hey, I'm a dead dog. Why would you be kind to me? Verse 9. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth, hang on, let me try that again. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my Lord the king has commanded his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame in both feet. Your second take-home truth is generosity is love. Generosity is love. 
David begins talking to Mephibosheth and he says, I love your father and I want to show you love as well. And I want you to look at what David does. David takes resources that are rightfully his as the new conquering king of Israel. And he says, I'm going to give this to you for no reason, but because I loved your father. He turns and immediately says, your grandfather Saul had many lands. Those lands are mine, but I am going to give those to you. That land is yours for you to get rich off of, to feed you and take care of you. Secondly, he says, you're going to eat at my table. You're going to come eat with me. This is, this is it. You're going to be part of the king's inner circle. I don't have to give that to you. I'm going to give that to you. The equivalent of what he's telling him here is you have an, an invitation to the White House. Like today, the White House, you can go visit the White House and you can like do the little tour. I think they still do that. There's the West Wing where they do all of the political business. But there's a part of the White House that is called the residence. And that's just where the president and his family live. Not where they host the extravagant balls. This is where they eat. This is where they sleep. This is where they sit on the TV or on the couch and watch TV. And what David is doing with Mephibosheth, he's not saying, hey, I want to take care of you. I'll make sure you have the money you need. He's saying, come to my house. Come into the inner part of the, of the temple, or not the temple, the palace. Come into the inner part of the White House. You're going to eat with me and my family. And then thirdly, he gives him servants. Ziba was Saul's servant who would now be David's servant. But, but David looks at Ziba and says, hey, you served his grandfather. You served his father. Now you and all of your sons and all of your servants. Now what I want you to do is forget about me and I want you to take care of Mephibosheth. I want you to work that land that I've given him. I want you to take care of him and make sure he has food always. But by the way, he'll never need that food because he will always eat at my table. He will always be treated as my son. See, in this story, what David does is he elevates Mephibosheth from enemy to part of his kingdom. He adopts Mephibosheth from an orphan and makes him part of the family. He chases down Mephibosheth, the outcast, and makes him accepted. He takes Mephibosheth, who was in hiding, and creates in him a world, or creates for him a world in which he was invited. And we have to ask, why would anybody do this for somebody, especially somebody who would be an enemy? Why would somebody go through all of this trouble to bless this man who, by his own profession, says, "I am just a dead dog." I'm nothing. I deserve nothing. And David answers that question in verse 1. Why would David do this? Verse 1, he says, I will show him love for Jonathan's sake. What kind of love is that? Number three, take home truth. It says our generosity is extended to those loved by who we love. See, if you go back in the story, David and Jonathan are best friends. As a matter of fact, when you, when you speak on friendship in the Bible, you use David and Jonathan because they were sacrificial friends within their relationship. They loved each other deeply. The Bible says this. It says their souls were knit together. They were so close that their souls were connected there's a part of the Bible where Saul, Jonathan's dad, decides he wants to kill David because he understands David is probably going to take his spot and he begins to try to kill David. And Jonathan says, hey, dad's acting a little crazy. Let me help hide you. Jonathan, who would have been the king of Israel, comes to David and says, I know that I'm supposed to be king, but I believe God has chosen you to be king. And for that reason, I want you to know I support you wholeheartedly. I don't want the throne. David, I want you to have it, and I want you to be the king in my place. That's the kind of friendship that these two people had. 
And because David had that kind of love for Jonathan, he passes that love on to somebody that Jonathan would have loved to his son, Mephibosheth. Now, let me put it this way. I, I got my feelings hurt a couple years ago, a few years, several years ago, actually. Uh, Jessica and I were still dating, and she was driving one day, and as you do when you're bored, I pulled up my phone, and I got on Facebook, and I got on Facebook, and I found something that was just absolutely impossible. As soon as I got on Facebook, it popped up a notification. It said, Justin Collier has married Ginger Hill. That's impossible. Let me, let me tell you why that's impossible. Justin Collier is my best friend. And when he gets married, I'm going to be a groomsman at his wedding. As a matter of fact, I'm in the running for top two for best man. There is no way this man is about to get married without me knowing it. But yet there it is on Facebook. And we all know if you see it on Facebook, it must be true. That's a soapbox for another time. So I told Jessica, I said, I call him Duck. That's what I've always called him. I said, I think Duck got married. That doesn't seem right. I should have been there. So I get back on there an hour later, and I'm seeing more evidence. Like all of a sudden, she's changed her name from Ginger Hill to Ginger Collier, which is, you know, evident of a woman getting married and changing her last name to her husband's last name. There's pictures of them. She's wearing a white dress. He's wearing a suit. He never wears a suit. This happened, and I didn't know about it. I had no clue it was happening. And so I did what all good friends do. I sent him a passive-aggressive text message on his wedding day. I said, hey, bud, looks like you got married. Wish I would have known. I would have been there for you. Congratulations. And he texted me back and he said, okay, look, here's the deal. He said, what happened is we were having some discussions. We were going to get married and we were having an argument. I think it was with his parents about who was going to be there. We wanted a small wedding. We didn't want everybody in the world there. We wanted our family and we wanted our close friends there. That's what I wanted. However, every time I tried to extend this past family, my mom wanted to start inviting all these people I didn't know who I didn't want in my wedding. So we had to make a compromise. And the compromise was at this wedding, it is family only. Parents, grandparents, siblings, nothing else. He said, that left y'all out. I'm sorry. But here's, here's the compromise part of it. We're going to have a party and a celebration of our wedding. And that's when you guys are going to come celebrate our wedding with me. I said, okay, when is it? And it was like a week later, two weeks later. And so a week later, we go out to his parents' house where we're having this celebration, and we're pulling up to this place, and we're getting ready to get out and celebrate, and there are just cars everywhere. And I don't want to be a jerk, but let me just say this. I've known this man since we were in fourth grade. Not that many people like him. I had no clue why there was that many cars there. I hope he, if you listen to this, brother, I love you. I just want you to know that. And we get out, and I realize now what the argument was about. I walk into the house and I start identifying, okay, that's his aunt, uncle, cousin, second cousin. And we start talking about all these people that are there to celebrate him. But then I start seeing people I don't know. And so I'm asking, like, hey, who's that guy? And my buddy would be like, oh, he works with dad. I said, oh, are you close to him? He's like, I've met him a couple times, you know, I see him around. You know, they just go to work with dad and see him. Oh, what about that lady? Oh, that's mom's friend from college. They, they talk on the phone. I've never met her, but she's here. It's like, why are all these people here for your wedding? They, they don't even know you. They're introducing you, them to you and then saying congratulations. And the reason for it was, is those people had a love and affection for my friend's parents. And that love and affection transferred from the parents down to their child. Because my buddy was precious to his parents, anybody who loved his parents, my buddy was precious to them as well. And they showed up with gifts and money in celebration of his wedding. That's the reason we go to funerals and we grieve over people we've never met because someone we love is grieving because they love them.
That's the reason during gradua graduation season, we start writing checks to kids we don't know because they're so-and-so's grandson or so-and-so's daughter, and we love them because we love their parents. See, there's something about us. When you love someone, you love who is important to them. And what David's doing in this, he's saying, I love Jonathan. Jonathan is precious to me. And if you're Jonathan's son, you are precious to him. Therefore, I love you too. And it creates this great um, generosity within David. So here's the application for us as we sit here, if we call ourselves Christians. If we come to this place and call ourselves Christians, what we're saying is we're saying we love God. He is important to us. He is the most important thing of our life. We've dedicated our lives to following him because of his love for us and our love for him. And if we claim that, we have to love and find precious who God loves and finds precious. That's what we're called to do. And listen, you will never look into the eyes of someone in this world who God does not just absolutely adore. God feels about all people like you feel about your children or your grandchildren. He is in love with them. He sacrificed his life so he could bring them to himself. He loves everyone. And when we go out into the world, we can't look at people as the drug addict down the street. That drug addict is God's beloved child. With a passion, God is pursuing them. We can't look at people as that, that person who stole from me. That person who stole from you is making mistakes and sin, which is an affront to a holy God. But God still passionately loves them. Here's where it gets hairy for us. Those people who have that one sin that is your pet peeve, that one thing you can't stand and you can never understand how people would fall into that sin or how they would celebrate that or how they would live that way. God gave his life for them. Because they're his creation, his most beloved part of this world. And if we call ourselves follower of, followers of Christ, we don't look at people as who they are to us. We look at people as who they are to God. And then we love with generosity the way that God has loved us with generosity. That's what he calls us to do. With no qualifications, with nothing, to, uh, nothing that they have to do to earn it, we love with them. Uh, last week we looked at First John and John spoke about love and he spoke about loving people who were in financial need, people who didn't have what we had. And he ended that thought process. He said, listen, brothers and sisters, don't love in word only. If all you do is say, I love you, you probably don't actually love those people. He said, Let's love in action indeed. If we are going to love the people that God loves, it will be a love that causes us to take action. It will be a love that causes us to be generous. It will be a love that causes us to take the resources that God has given us and use them to care for others that God loves. That's why we take little shoe boxes and we fill them up and we send them to kids across the world who will never do anything for us. Because Jesus loves the little children. And so we, we give them the things they need for this world, and we hope with that that's opening an opportunity for them to know how much God loves them. That's why as a church we have a food pantry where we bring and donate food to give to people who will never come to this church, who will never pay us back in any way. They don't owe us a thing. We just want to make sure you're fed. Because my God loves you, and he cares for your needs, and maybe part of the way he's caring for you is through us. 
That's why when people stop at this church and they say, I need some gas or I need a hotel room for a night, that's why we give them the ability to do that. Because my God would give you a place to stay. He loves you passionately. And if he loves you, I do too. And so we're going to do that. So as a church, we love generously. But the point of this is not what we as a church do. It's what we as individuals do. What we do as the church when we are deployed outside of this building. God calls us, calls us individually to love in that same way. To love generously to the people that we work with and to our neighbors and the people that we see walking down the street. To care for them the same way that God cares for them with all generosity. And this is what David is doing with Mephibosheth. He's saying, I'm loving you because Jonathan loves you. But David takes us a step farther and he says in verse 3, I want to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. But David says, what I really want to do is I want to show him the kindness of God. So your next take on truth number four is our generosity is extended as an example of God's love. So what David, what David does here is he takes his knowledge about how God loves him. He says, I want to recreate that in me and I want to apply that to you. If God loves me generously, I want to take that generous love recreated in me and I want to apply it to you so that you can see God's love. And David, maybe more than anybody else in the Bible, understood God's love in a way that most people don't. The Bible gives David a title. It says he was a man after God's own heart. And we hear that and go, oh, David must have been God's favorite. Now, David was no more loved by God than you and me. The title is given to him because of the way that he pursues God. He pursues God with love. He pursues God with passion. And he understands God in a way many of us never will because we don't have that same kind of pursuit. And what David does is he gives to Mephibosheth in a way that, that extends God's love to him and recreates it. Or your next take on truth number five is a bunch of bullet points. And it just says, David sees God's love as a love that, point A on that, is not earned. That comes from verse seven. Oh, we see from Mephibosheth is he does nothing to earn this. He does nothing to get David's love. He does nothing to earn it. He didn't come to David and say, let me pay my way into your graces. He didn't come to David and say, I want you to love me. He didn't even ask for it. David goes in pursuit of him to show him his love. And Mephibosheth did nothing but exist. That's the kind of love God has. A love of pursuit. A love that can't be earned. Point B is David sees God's love as a love that restores. That's also from verse 7. We see here that Mephibosheth would have been a very rich and blessed man had it not been for Saul being rejected from God. But through wars and tension through the family, Mephibosheth has spent his life in hiding. When David pulls him in, when David says, I'm going to show you the love of God, what he says is this state where you have lived in, we're going to forget about that. I want to restore to you what should have been yours in the first place. I want to give you what was rightfully yours. And he gives Mephibosheth all of the land that had belonged to his family. Point C is David sees God love, God's love as a love that changes identity. That's from verse 8. I love Mephibosheth here. This man is so broken. David shows him just a little bit of kindness. And his only remark besides don't kill me, I'm your servant is, why would you do this for me? Don't you know who I am? I'm nobody. I'm the man that everybody wants to kill. 
I'm the man who was rejected by God. I'm the man who can't walk. Why, why would you love me? Why would you love me as a dead dog? And I love the way that David answers that, is he simply doesn't answer it. Mephibosheth gives this plea. He's like, why would you do that? And David's like, Ziba, Ziba, come here. Hey, what you're going to do, this man is your master. You serve him now. And then you can almost feel David looking at Mephibosheth. He's like, oh, you think you're nobody? Do nobodies have 35 servants? Do nobodies own land and have people that care for them? You're loved and you're cared for. Uh, point D, David sees God's love as a love that is extravagant. That's from verse 10. David goes overboard here. David goes overboard. He tells, he tells Ziba, he's like, here's what you're going to do. Take this land that was Saul's. Your job, you're going to be in charge. Make sure that they farm this. Make sure they get food out of it. Make sure that Mephibosheth always has everything that he will ever need. Oh, but you'll never see him there. I want him to have it. I want him to have the extra, but he's going to eat at my table. I want to provide for his needs here, plus give him all of that. David sees God's love as a love that goes above and beyond. And the last point, point E, is David sees God's love as a love that is relational. That's from verse 11. It would have been easy for David to feel like, oh, I've got some kind of, I've got some kind of you know, moral duty here to be kind to him. He could have brought him in and said, hey, here's, here's a few hundred dollars. Here's some land. Here's some food. I hope you have a good life. Goodbye. But that's not what David says because that's not the kind of love that God has. David says, you know what? I'm going to provide for you everything you need, but you're invited into the family. You're going to come sit at my table. You're going to eat the king's food. You're going to sit beside my physical sons and you're going to live like I am your father. You will have everything that you possibly need for all of your life. See, David expressed God's love in this way. And if we're going to express God's love to the world, that's how we have to do this. But here's what I want you to understand about this story. My deepest hope for us as a church and us as individuals is that someday we get to be David to somebody and if we're really blessed, I hope we get to be David to multiple somebodies. I hope we get to show people God's love through generosity. But you got to understand this, this story is not really about us being David. The story is about us being Mephibosheth. The story is about us being the broken outcast who lives under threat of death all of their life. You see, in this story, Mephibosheth is a threat to David's kingdom. His very existence says that I am rebelling against your kingdom because you are king and I might one day possibly take the throne. And yet you and me, our very existence, our very life is an attack against God's kingdom. You say, whoa, Brian, no, not me. Like, I, I don't worship Satan or any of that. I don't really fight God. No, listen, every time we sin, you know what sin is? Sin is when we attack the goodness of God when our, as our actions, when we rebel against him. If we have sin in our life ever once, we build a kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. And yet this love from God is poured out on us. Though we were enemies, God adopts us. And he shows us, he shows us that godly love, a love that is not earned. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, when we had nothing to offer, when we were dead in our sin in every way, Jesus Christ died for us. And he gives us a love that restores us. You know, there was a time in history when human beings lived in complete harmony with God. You can read about that in Genesis 1 through 3. 
Complete harmony with God. Complete happiness. No death. No pain. No bad experiences. God literally walked the face of the earth with his people and we messed it up when we sinned. And yet when Jesus comes and dies on the cross, it's not just about making sure that we don't have to go to hell and just that we go to heaven. It's about restoring that relationship. What God originally created that we were designed to know and be known by God and walk beside him all of our life, actually forever because our life was never supposed to end. He's trying to restore what he originally created. God loves you and I with a love of restoration. God gives us a love that changes our identity. That means that when we walk into the presence of God the Father, because of Jesus Christ, God is not going to look at me and say, there's Brian the sinner. God looks at me and says, there's Brian my son. And he can call me his son. Because when I walk into his presence, all he's going to see on me is the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood that has washed me clean of my sin so that I can be found righteous before God the Father. God loves us with a love that is extravagant. I think we forget this. God loves us with a love of grace and mercy. And somewhere in the back of our head, there's a little ticker saying, one day we're going to run out of mercy. One day I'm going to take one step too far into the sin and that'll be the end of grace. But the Bible says that God each day starts with new morning mercies. There will never be more sin than there is God's mercy and grace. He gives us everything we need and then more. We will never walk outside of his love. And then God gives us a love that is relational. You were designed not to be religious. You were designed not to pursue your own passionate lust. You were designed to know and be known by the creator of the universe. And the love that he gives us is not just, hey, here's a free pass into a better place than hell. The love that he gives us is like, you get to eat at my table. You and I are loved by the king. We are invited to be his. We are invited to know him in a deep, intimate way. Brother Danny, and this morning as we talk about the love of God, I want you to know that before you can be David, you have to be Mephibosheth. And maybe today, maybe today we need to receive that. So the Bible says this, that love of God is available to us. We just said reach out and take it. He doesn't ask us to do anything to earn it. He just says, if you will put your faith in, if you will ask God for his mercy and his grace, it's yours. You can become a follower of Christ. You can be saved in this moment for no price other than saying, I trust God to be who he says he is. If you need that today, today is the day that you can do that. You can walk forward and talk to me. I would love nothing more than to pray through that with you. But for the rest of us, if we've received that, our life is not just about getting through until we get to heaven. Our life is about showing the glory of God in this world. Our life is about loving in action and loving with generosity in such a way that says, I love you because God loves you. And I want his perfect love, the love that he has given me, recreated in me so that I can apply it to you. I've got a lot of work to do in that area, as I know we all do. As I ask you every week, let's not leave here the same way we walked in. I'm going to ask you this, this morning to just commit to being more generous for God and loving the way that God loves. Let's stand and worship.